That brings us to the second division. Yahweh sent a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Now, not whale, we already talked about this, but the word fish here would be Leviathan. The idea is the Leviathan. And the Leviathan is that chaos monster. Not an evil, bad monster that you have to defeat and destroy, but a just unpredictable. And every single time you see the Leviathan in the Bible, it represents chaos. And God can use it as judgment, or when it's not in God's hands, it destroys people and God saves you from it. So God in this particular case is no longer using the storm, he's using the Leviathan. And he swallowed them. And no matter what the cartoons show you, look, if you're in the belly of a fish, that's not fun. Okay? I mean, he says that there's seaweed wrapped around him. And I mean, imagine being in the belly of a fish. I mean, like a catfish. Like catfish swallow hooks. Like there's no getting your hook back. You just cut the line and cut your co- um, count your losses. And so basically he's in this belly, and the belly's squeezing on him trying to digest him. There might be stomach acid depending on the fish. There's water like coming in and out of the fish's gills, so you're like constantly like drowning with seaweed wrapped around your face. And who wants to be wrapped in that? That's smelly, nasty stuff. And so this isn't a fun experience for three days. I mean, I don't even really want to crawl into a hole for three days, let alone that kind of a thing. So it's not like life got better for him in a Pinocchio sense. And there's no candles that you light in this kind of stuff. (laughs) For three days and three nights he's there. And Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the stomach of a fish. And he said, I called out to Yahweh from my distress. And he answered me from the depths of Sheol. Sheol is their word for the grave. And the only people who go to the grave are dead people. I cried out for help and you heard my prayer. You threw me into the deep waters. The deep waters is a metaphor for the underworld. And the only people who go to the underworld are dead. You threw me into the waters, into the middle of the sea, and the ocean current engulfed me. All the mighty waves you sent and swept over me. I thought I had been banished from your sight. What does it mean to be banished from God's sight? The dead, grave. I thought I had been banished from your sight, and I would never see you again in your holy temple. Water engulfed me up to my neck. The deep ocean surrounded me, and seaweed was wrapped around my head. I went down to the, um, the very depths of the mountains. They, but the ancients believed that just like the mountains went up and held up the sky, the mountains went down into the depths of the ocean. The gates of the netherworld. That's the underworld where the dead go. It barred in forever. But you brought me up from the pit. That's another word for the underworld. O Yahweh, my God, when my life was ebbing away, I called out to Yahweh and my prayer came to your holy temple. Now notice how many times he uses words of being dead. What does God do to every prophet who disobeys? He kills him. Now, did Jonah literally die and God bring him back? I don't think so, but is it a metaphorical death that God has done to him? Heck yeah. I mean, if anybody, look, if anybody is in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean, you're pretty much thinking you're dead. And it's, it's basically a death. And so he gets that God has killed him so to speak, because he deserves it for his disobedience. Now, notice that this is what he's saying. So far, most of this prayer is him just describing how awful his experience is. It's more whining than anything. Then it says, I cried out to my God, and he heard me from your holy temple. The temple is on a giant cosmic mountain. 
So he's so far away from God right now. Those who worship worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. But as for me, I promise to offer a sacrifice to you with a public declaration of praise. I will surely do what I have promised. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Did he repent? No. He doesn't repent. He doesn't use the name Yahweh, which is the personal, intimate, covenantal, relational name of God. He doesn't say, I'm sorry that I disobeyed you. Look, if your kids said this, you probably would not be pleased. If your kids said, screw you, I'm not obeying you, I'm not going to do any of that kind of stuff, and like you had to ground them and put them in their bedroom and lock them in the pit in the depths of the underworld in their messy bedroom and all that kind of stuff, and they finally come out and they're like, Daddy, Daddy, please bring me out. I'm alone. Please rescue me. And they cry out to you, and you're like, bring them out. Like, okay, you want to talk? And they're just like, I promise you, I'll do a whole bunch of things in the house to make it right. And and I'll just praise you. I'll go to school and talk about how awesome of a father you are. (laughs) Would you really be pleased with that? But that's all Jonah does. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, Dad, for disobeying you. He doesn't say, you know what, I have found a new compassion for the Ninevites and I'll go preach to them. There is no repentance whatsoever there. There's no ownership of how he was wrong. He basically just says, in all intents and purposes, I guess I can't get away from you. So I guess I have to do what I have to do. And I'll just make up for this with lots of sacrifices. Remember, that's exactly what the Satan accused Job of doing. And we learned that Job isn't like that. But now we're learning that Jonah's like that. That's Jonah's perspective of God. It's almost like God, the only reason God didn't kill him like every other prophet is because he wanted Jonah to experience what he did not want to experience was just kind of a little death in itself. You know those people that you really hate over there? The only reason I'm keeping you alive is so you can watch them repent and change because that's really going to kill you any, more than anything. But... I'm also God who's hoping that you'll learn the lesson and change and repent. So Yahweh commanded the fish to disgorge him. That's a much better word than vomit. It's much more graphic. Disgorge him onto the dry land. Notice that God brought him right back to where he was started. Why? Because he's the God of the sky and the land and the sea. You cut your finger your side explodes with blood and that kind of stuff, and I can totally handle it. You throw up and I'm gone, okay? So I can't imagine. I can barely handle my girls throwing up, let alone being in the throw up and, like, coming out. Like, that is so nasty. And if there's any kind of stomach acid involved, like, okay, the, the, the average Israelite is dark complected with dark hair. And if there's stomach acid involved, then... He's like totally different walking in Nineveh. Maybe that's what got their attention. Now, that's that's speculation. So I'm not going to say that's true, but it's possible. And then the only thing to clean yourself up is salt water. That's not good. So Yahweh said a second time. I shouldn't have to repeat to you. Go immediately to Nineveh, that great city. The greatness has more to do with its reputation than its size. In fact, the city is actually not that big. Proclaim the message that I tell you. Jonah went immediately to Nineveh as Yahweh had said. Now Nineveh was an enormous city. Now also that should be great. That's an interpretation. 
It required three days to walk through it. Now, many scholars have had a field day with this. There's no city in the ancient world that would take somebody three days to walk across it. There's no city in any archaeological digging that has been found to be that big, especially Nineveh, which we have dug up, even Nineveh in its greatest height. It probably should not be interpreted that way. It doesn't mean, it can mean one of two things. It either meant that it took him three days to walk to Nineveh to get there from wherever it was, um, or it could be most likely it means it took him three days to travel through it and preach his message. Okay, we could drive through Columbus pretty quickly, but if you're driving through Columbus on a circuit to talk to people, it's going to take you longer. And so to get the message, when Jonah began to enter the city one day, so walk, he announced, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says. What God is he talking about? Don't know. He never mentions what God he represents. Does he ever mention repentance? No, he never says repent. Does he ever mention the possibility of them being forgiven and restored? No. Does he even tell them how to do it or what it even look like? No. We have never seen a prophet speak so little. Prophets always say, thus saith Yahweh. God is bringing judgment. If you repent, he will spare you. He just says, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will overthrow you. There's no hope there. There's no way to change it. Why? Because he wants them to die. Why mention repentance if you want them to die? This is like your kids say, okay, I'll take out the trash. And then they just go outside and just kick the trash can as hard as they can to the curb. They're like, see, there you go. I've done it. That's his mentality. That's his attitude. The Nineveh people in Nineveh believed in God. They declared a fast. They put on sackcloth. And they're the greatest to the least of them. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne and he took off his royal robe and he put on sackcloth and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation said in Nineveh by the decree of the king, his nobles, no human or animal, cattle or sheep is to taste anything. They must not eat and they must not drink water. He's making the animals fast. That's how repentant they want to be. They must not eat or drink water. Every person, animal, must put on sackcloth. Can you imagine that? And must cry earnestly to God. I told you it's a satire. We're even going to make the animals. To God and everyone in turn from their evil ways and living from the violence that they do. Who knows? Perhaps God might be willing to change his mind and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we might not die. They got all that from Jonah. God used it anyways. Listen, after reading this book, you have like no excuse to be afraid to talk to people. <laughs> it's like, how can you believe that God will not use you after this? They immediately assume, like, imagine the conclusion. The only thing that I can imagine is they've either heard about this Yahweh and they recognize Jonah from his ethnicity. And so they're going based on rumors that have traveled throughout the world, which they have traveled through the world by this time. Or they're assuming that if a God actually sends somebody to warn you, then that God might possibly be open to allowing you to escape judgment. Is that a logical, absolute, guaranteed conclusion they can make? No. But notice that they say, perhaps. He actually hears God's voice. God actually puts them in these horrible situations and delivers him from them. And he can't even repent. 
Yet Nineveh gets nothing but an angry man who wants them to die, and they're willing to repent. The foreigner is showing themselves to be more godly than the prophet himself. This is how bad Israel's become. This is how bad Israel's become. When God saw their actions, he turned from their evil um, when they turned from their evil ways of living, God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened with them, and he did not destroy them. They're right. Because God is a merciful God to sinners. Now here's what's interesting. Jonah said, in 40 days you will be overturned. And God saw that their heart had turned. This is the cleverness of God. He's preaching a message God's going to overturn you. Yay! And they do exactly what he preached. They turned, overturned their hearts. God used a different meaning of the word to fulfill his prophecy. That they repented. Here's the real point of the book. The real point of the book is God dealing with Jonah. This displeased Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1, terribly. Okay, this word terribly is the word of um, distress. And it's the word ra'ah in Hebrew. It's the exact word used of the Ninevites' wickedness. Basically what the narrator is saying is that they were ra'ah, wicked, but they turned from it. Now the new ra'ah is the prophet of God. He's the wicked one. And then what the narrator is really going to show you now is the real, true wickedness is Jonah's heart. See, Nineveh was being judged for their actions, but their heart was repentant. What's even more raw evil than that is Jonah's lack of love and compassion. He prayed to Yahweh and said, Oh Yahweh, this is just what I thought would happen. When I was in my own country, this is what I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy, the one who relents concerning threat and judgment. So now Yahweh, kill me instead, because I would rather die than live. And Yahweh said, are you really this angry, Ra'ah? Are you really this wicked? Now notice what he says. Now for the first time ever, you find out why Jonah really disobeyed God. And why was it? Yeah, I knew that there was a possibility to repent. I knew you're the kind of God that would forgive any sin. And I hate them so much, I'd rather die than watch them repent and change their lives and watch them be saved. That's prejudice. That's hatred. Can you imagine saying that about anybody? In fact, he's going to go up on a hill and get front row seats, hoping that maybe they really will be destroyed and he'll get to watch it happen. That's evil. That's evil. And what makes this even more evil is he quotes Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. This scene is one of the most powerful scenes in the entire Bible. Because this is the scene where in Exodus 30... So, in Exodus chapter 19, he just told the people, If you obey me, I will bless you in a way that nobody else has been blessed before. So then he says, this is what obedience looks like. He speaks verbally in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments to them. And says, this is what obedience looks like. In chapter 21, they all say, we will do everything you commanded. We love you. We want to obey you. 
In chapter 24, they make a covenant with God, promising that they will lovingly obey him and all the Ten Commandments, and they will be his people. In 32, 40 days later, they're worshiping idols. Not only the idols, but idols that they were worshiping in Egypt. They brought them back with them, the golden calf. And not only that, they said, Behold, O Israel, the gods who brought you out of Egypt. They gave credit to pagan gods for their deliverance. This would be like, I mentioned this before when we were in Exodus, but this would be like your pastor on Sunday morning revealing a statue of Buddha and saying, Behold, the God who died on the cross for your sins. That is a horrible thing. You can't say anything more offensive and hateful than to give a pagan God credit for your salvation, what God did for you, as he's right up there in a pillar of fire right before you, and he verbally talked to you, and he saved you through ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, and you said, I love you so much, we'll obey you. In 40 days, you're already having an affair with the most evil, messed up God you could possibly imagine and giving credit to somebody else for everything. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. And what does Moses say? God, please forgive them. And God says, okay, I'll forgive them. And then God, Moses says, I want to see your glory in chapter 34. And God says, I will give you my glory, but you can't handle all of it. But you will see me for who I really am. And as he walks by Moses, he says this. I am a merciful, compassionate God, slow to anger. This is what I want you to know me as primarily. It is one of the most powerful, character-defining moments of God in the entire Bible. And that statement has become the foundation to almost every other book that every other writer writes about who God is. and becomes the basis for the book of Hebrews and the, the Gospels. And, 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 and the very thing that God says, this is who I am. This is my essence. This is what I want you to know me by and why you want to relate to. Jonah quotes that and says, that's why I didn't go. I didn't want them to know that God. And I don't like that part of you when it deals with them. You can be like that to us, but don't be like that to them. That's messed up. Now, the Ninevites, remember, were skinning people alive. They were cutting off heads. They were doing horrible things. And Jonah might know people that that had been done to him. And there's a really, I mean, this is like a Jew coming out of Nazi Germany. If anybody has really good reason to really hate the Germans, it would be a Jew coming out of a concentration camp. And the Germans make, sorry, the Ninevites make the Germans look like Disney World and their evilness. So no one would blame him too much for having those feelings. But still at the same time that you're withholding that, this is what makes him a horrible prophet. This was what makes him a horrible image of God. So God's going to teach him a lesson. So Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. Remember, moving eastward is walking away from God. And he made a shelter for himself and there and sat down under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Yahweh God appointed a little plant that caused it to grow over Jonah to be a shade. Here's the irony. The word appointed also can have the idea of anointed, which means God's new prophet is a plant. I can make anything my prophet if you want. If you're going to be that evil and that wicked towards them, I'm picking a plant to be my prophet now. And my plant is going to convict you because I'm the God of the sky, the land, and the sea. 
He caused it to grow over Jonah to be a shade over his head to rescue him from his misery. Now Jonah was very delighted about this little plant. He began to love the plant more than the Ninevites. So God sent a worm at dawn. A worm is used in two ways. It is used of the thing that feeds on God, on the people that God judged and condemned. And it's also used of the human when he's completely devoid of God. God calls us his children. He calls us his people when we're following him. But when we're disobedient, evil creatures, he calls us worms. And God sent a worm at dawn the next day and attacked the little plants so that it dried up. And when the sun began to shine, God sent a hot east wind, a wind from the east, which is a symbol of judgment, to scorch him. The sun scorched his head and he grew faint. And so he despaired of life. And he said, I would rather die than live. Remember that all the prophets are really dramatic when it comes to wanting to die. I would rather die than live. And God said to Jonah, are you really so very angry about this little plant? He said, I am as angry as I could possibly be. And Yahweh said, you were upset about this little plant, something for which you have not worked, nor did you do anything to make it grow. It grew up overnight and died the next day. Shouldn't I even be more concerned about Nineveh and this enormous or this great city? There are even more than 120,000 people in it who do not know their right hand from their wrong, or right from wrong, or your translation might say right hand from left hand, as well as many animals. The end. You're like, that's a cliffhanger. He basically says, and look, this plant is so insignificant. It grows up in one day and dies in the exact same day. It's just a plant. And you care more about a plant than you do real people with real lives. The reason they're so evil is because they don't know better. This is why God said, Woe to you, Israel, for it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than you. Because Sodom and Gomorrah was ignorant of who God really was and what he expected of them. Israel knew exactly who God was and what he expected of them. And they still chose to be evil. In fact, at the end of Kings, we're told that they were more evil than the Canaanites. And that's really evil. They are ignorant. Nobody's ever taught them right or wrong. They're my children. I, care. I even care about the animals. And I want to save them. Remember Jesus? Jesus is picking up on this idea. If God takes care of the plants and the flowers that are temporary, how much more will he take care of you? And he's kind of said in a different way. Like, if you can care about this plant, why aren't you caring about these people? And then it ends abruptly, and you're like, "That's a real, does Jonah repent? Does he get the message? What happens after that? And the reason it ends so abruptly is because you're Jonah. The question is not whether Jonah repents. The question is, do you repent? And you're like, well, I've never said that. I've never done anything like that. Really? Are there people in your life that you have deep bitterness for them? That when they walk in the room, your blood boils or you clench your fist or you're like, I can't talk to them? And if you're like that, you're definitely not sharing the gospel with them. You're not showing love. Maybe you're not quoting the compassion of God and saying, that's exactly why I don't want to talk to them because I want them to go to hell. But there are people that we have experienced where we have been born in a certain family where our family members are maybe racist towards people and we have subconsciously picked that up from them. 
and we're, we're averted to them, when that certain people group come in the room, we were uncomfortable. There's many neighbors that you've lived next to for a long time and maybe haven't shared the gospel. There are many people that you're so angry at them that you can't forgive them, let alone even share the gospel with them or talk to them. And you're basically the image of God who's supposed to communicate God's compassion and mercy and forgiveness, and you can't even talk to that person. If we really want to get personal, let's talk about the way that the Republicans feel about the Democrats and the Democrats feel about the Republicans. I mean, we're all great Christians, and I don't mean every single one of us is like this, but the American church is really good at being Christian until election time. And all of a sudden, our allegiance to God goes out the window, and we become more allegiance to Hillary or Trump, and we become very hateful on Facebook. I have seen Christians that I have great respect for who've turned on each other on Facebook and said some cruel things. Well, this is why now we know you're not a Christian because you voted for him. We know you're not a Christian now because you voted for Hillary. Do you honestly think that the liberals are so bad that they're not Christians? I know they think of that about other ways. There are a lot of things in our heart where we can be bitter towards people. We don't talk to people. We predispose ideas about who they are because of our upbringing or an ideology that we bought into subconsciously. And God is looking at you and saying, do you know how much I care about these people? You can't even talk to them. Or you're, you're avoiding this person. You haven't talked to this family member in years. When you find out that other family reunions, you avoid them or you don't even go. Or there's that kid in your neighborhood that you think he's just going to destroy everything. Or those people just moved into the neighborhood and they're just going to make the neighborhood go down the hill. We are Jonah. And we may be different extents on the spectrum, but somewhere with somebody, we fit somewhere on the spectrum, right? Somebody. And it could be somebody who, a spouse or a family member that hurt you really bad, really bad. There's just somebody. And this is what God is saying. Are you going to repent? Is Exodus 34 only for certain people that you like? Or is Exodus 34 the character of God for everyone? You are my image. You are my prophets. Because the prophet is the one who's on the divine counsel of Yahweh. And guess what? The divine counsel of Yahweh is in us through the Holy Spirit. And you're the prophet. And you're Jonah. So I would challenge you, as we go home, to really think on that. To ask God. And don't, listen, don't you go digging for people. You, maybe God has already put somebody in your mind, or a people group, or an ideology of people. But I would just say, hey God, when I'm lying in my bed or when I wake up in the morning, you just put a name or a people group in my head that is so clear, that is so obvious that it's you giving me that person and not that I went digging for it, trying to find it. If you dig it, you'll go the wrong place because your wisdom is not sufficient. Just ask God to put something in your head that you need to know. And maybe God won't. And that doesn't mean that you don't have anybody. It might mean you don't have anybody, or it might mean that you're not ready for that person because there's other things that God has to deal with in your life first. And I've learned that. Sometimes I'm like, God, I want this out of my life and I want to become better in this area. 
and because that's my grocery list of changes. But sometimes God has had to come to me later and say, that's actually a symptom of this over here. Oh, yeah, that thing you never want to think about. And that's so deeply ruined your life that if we deal with that, this other thing will automatically get taken care of. So we're not doing your grocery list. We're doing my grocery list. Because my grocery list goes way deeper into your heart. And when we can deal with that, it will deal with these other issues. And so maybe God won't give you a name or a people group. Maybe God will give you something completely different. And when that's dealt with, then all the other stuff will just be dealt with naturally and go away. And so just pray for God to say, what do you want to convict me of in my lack of compassion or the bitterness or the people that I avoid as I go through life?